the Patuxent General. Greetings and welcome in. You've made it just in time to the Patuxent General, your connection to all things Patuxent-ish. I am your host, Jess. We have so much this week. First, my dad's super meatball recipe, straight from the 70s. Then, our special drink this week, an olive aperitif. Our local place this week is Salter's Grove, a park along Narragansett Parkway. And we also have a special Woods Gary House edition of The House on the Corner. But first, I would like to thank our Patreon subscribers. You fabulous people make it possible for us to do this. And because of that, we're growing. So thank you. A poem. The Subarus have trees on top. And our walks at dawn are crisp. Smiling eyes and foggy breath in the village. While the birds scream and fish. This week's recipe, Dad's Meatballs. I got this recipe from Dad when I was really young, mostly from watching him do it. I made this version for years to rave reviews from family and friends. Then I had bigger kids running around and I adapted this to a bake method. Either is incredible, but admittedly, the crispy coating on the fried is mind-blowing. I saw Dad recently and asked him his thoughts on this, and he said that he had changed to bake years ago, trying to fry less. I always call these Dad's meatballs whenever anybody asks. However, Dad says that they are really his mom's recipe. Well, there you go. Now they're yours. For this recipe, Dad's meatballs, you're going to need one half a pound of ground beef, one half a pound of ground pork, one and a half cups of whole wheat breadcrumbs, three eggs, a good amount of dried oregano and basil, garlic, Worcestershire sauce, soy sauce, and grated onion. First, preheat oven to 350 degrees. Take your hands, gloved makes it easier, and mush together all of the ingredients at room temperature until fairly well mixed. Beware of overmixing. Shape into two inch diameter size balls. Roll through flour. Heat a deep skillet and then add olive oil about one half inch up the pot. When hot, Gently add meatballs with a spoon. Brown them on each side, only turning when a nice crust has formed. When all sides are done, spoon them into a baking dish and bake for half an hour. These can be made ahead in big batches and then frozen on trays and put in freezer bags for economizing or to have a backup plan when guests arrive unexpectedly. When you do want to use them, you may heat them in the oven or in a sauce. If you do heat them up in a sauce, stir gently but frequently so that they don't break down, or then you just have a lovely meat sauce. They can be served with just sauce or pasta or grilled veggies, or all of the above. That's my way. You enjoy them your way. Podcasting isn't hard when you have the right partners. The team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping you succeed. We switched over to Buzzsprout and they made our broadcast so much easier to get listed on every major podcast platform. Following the link in the show notes lets Buzzsprout know we sent you. Gets you a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan and help support our show. Join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout to get their message out into the world. Our special drink today is an olive aperitif. I asked Dad what he would drink to go with those meatballs, and he said, a good Malbec. 
and I agreed, but I don't think I need to explain to you good folk how to pour into a glass. So, I went with my choice when having dinner with Dad, an olive aperitif. Take a small glass and a tall toothpick. You will need an assortment of olives and pickles, choosing sweet or savory toward your own taste. Jalapeno stuffed olives and cocktail onions make a lovely combo. And then pour chilled vodka or gin into the glass, barely covering the olives. Garnish with a cherry tomato and a piece of cheese. You could use any cheese. I like fresh mozzarella cube or smoked cheddar in the winter. It's a lovely mini starter. Enjoy! This week's special place is Salter's Grove in Warwick, Rhode Island. This park off Narragansett Parkway has a long history steeping from its dark beginnings. It has gone through many construction and deconstruction cycles, which you can read about at saltersgrove.org. The last cottages, however, were removed in 1967 when it was dedicated in honor of George B. Slater, a councilman of the area. After Hurricane Carol in 1954, a breakwater was constructed to protect the local shoreway. The causeway, my favorite part, was only made to bring rocks to the breakwater, but it has endured to this day. Thanks to the efforts of the Friends of Salters Grove, Rhode Island DEM, and the City of Warwick. Most recently, they have reinvigorated the entire area, making it safer for the local wildlife and people. Stepping out into the breakway itself is breathtaking. Walking across those rocks to the islands before high tide were some of my best young memories. Make some of your own. Check out Salter's Grove. I want to tell you about my friend Mike and his electromagnetic pinball museum and restoration arcade. It's an all-inclusive place to relax and share anything related to modern pinball, EM pinball, and arcade games. A group of pinball and arcade fans with an addiction to games of all kinds and Lego too. $10 gets you free play on pinball and arcade games all day. You can find them at 881 Main Street, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or online at www.electromagneticpinballmuseum.com. The House on the Corner, a special edition at Woods Gary House. You can find more information on the actual Woods Gary House at inforisd.edu. The house has a student gallery at this time and is located at 62 Prospect Street, Providence, Rhode Island. In the fall of 1975, my father worked as a security guard for the Rhode Island School of Design, or RISD, by the locals. They also owned Woods Gary House, an old Victorian with large Gothic rooms and hallways. This building had been used to house precious works of art for quite some time, so security at that time was not complicated but very strong and effective. Dad had an immense ring of keys. Each key was for some sensitive area. Most he used every night, but there were a few he was never supposed to use, except during dire emergencies. The locks back then had three interlocking bars locked by three locks, so he had to unlock and relock each in order. The doors were supposed to remain locked at all times, and they were on all doors, either entering the building, the basement door, each room door, and each floor door. All windows were also locked and barred down in the frames. This place was as tight as a drum, and nobody could get around quickly. Not that there was ever anyone there. Dad worked at night, and unless it was a scheduled party, which they let him know about, it was always empty. 
One cold and moonless night, in early November, Dad was walking his rounds. He always started below at the dorms, checking the doors as he went. He was armed only with a large mag light. As he passed a dumpster outside the dorm, what looked to him like a giant white rat hissed at him. He jumped nearly into the street and shined his flashlight on it, only to see a very big opossum staring him down. The opossum did not run away or move an inch, just stared him down. Now, Dad grew up in a very rural area and hunted in his youth, so his alarm was unusual and surprised me hearing his story. But by the time he got to the Woods Gary house, his heart was pounding. He unlocks the first set of locks to enter the building and then as quick as possible locks them behind him again. He's now in a hallway with 12-foot ceilings. He turns to his left to the cellar door to start his rounds of the building. He unlocks the locks, turns on the lights, while he relocks them behind him. This is the only room he is allowed to turn the lights on. If any of the house lights turn on, the neighbors will call RISD and the police because it is unoccupied. The cellar lights were dim, so he had to use his light to check out the dusty corners of the room. He gets about halfway across the floor when he hears heavy, booted footfalls cross one side of the house to the other above his head. He bolts upstairs, unlocks, exits, and relocks the cellar door. He looks around the corridor. Nothing. He never heard the locks from any of the rooms here, so he must still be in the building, he thought. All right. He figures, let's check. He goes through the first floor, one at a time, locking the doors behind him, opening every closet, looking under every desk, any place a person could hide. Nothing. He does the same on the second floor. Not a thing out of place. So he goes to the third floor stairs. At the top, there is a door. Now, this is one he is not supposed to open. But he has been through the whole house, only to find nothing. So he reaches for the doorknob, and as his hand meets resistance, resistance so much so that he can't grip the knob, let alone turn it, a tingling sensation starts in that hand and crawls up his arms. Astonished, he stops trying and decides whatever is in there has more keys than he's supposed to have and doesn't want to be disturbed. So he rechecks the entire building, all locked, and then he left. Several weeks later, my parents were going to an event, and Dad told my mom what happened. She told him that she had a friend who was a secretary there, and that they all hated the third floor, most refused to go. I wonder, what is up there? I want to thank you, as always, for joining me here at the Patuxet General. If you would like to contact us about a recipe, have a Patuxet anecdote or a local ghost story, we love ghost stories. Our email is jess at patuxetgeneral.com. We can't wait to hear from you, so join us next time, and I'll meet you here at the Patuxet General. Pre-recorded in Patuxet.